0: previously on Popping Collars. Well, and in some cases, in a lot of cases, I think it's literally a voice, like a sound that you make. And I noticed this with young clergy a lot, is that um, stained glass voice that is totally an affect. I have no idea where it comes from. Can you give me yours right now? Liz? I, ha- no. I totally have one. And it's, and it's like the slam poetry voice. I absolutely have one. And, and that's because I, you know, my undergraduate degree was in creative writing. So I was oh, doing no. poetry readings every weekend. Oh, it's been hard no. to unlearn. I totally have that. So I'm not, you know, I'm not exempt from where it. Where can
1: we watch your most recently streamed sermon, Liz? <laughs> so that our audience might miss? Yeah. <laughs> We already have slam poetry in my
0: <laughs> uh, Welcome to Popping Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of religion and pop culture. My name is Greg Knight. I am the Director of Children and Youth Ministries at the Church of Bethesda-by-the-Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. With me are no co-hosts. They are scattered to the winds this week. So that's a perfect opportunity for me to put together an all-star panel of guests. First, he loves it when we call him the godfather of popping collars. It's Richard Lindsay, everyone. I am in
2: uh, back in the Bay Area in California, in Vallejo in the North Bay, because uh, I can't afford to live in the East Bay anymore. And uh, so I'm very glad to be here. Yeah. And uh, what are you up to these days? These days, I am teaching um, public speaking and communication at University of San Francisco, and um, I am also teaching continuing teach classes at Graduate Theological Union um, in uh, popular culture and religion. My class this past spring was in science fiction, fantasy, and comic books and religion. It just continues to be a blessing to be able to teach these kinds of courses. Sweet.
0: And as if Richard wasn't enough, we have not just one but both hosts of the excellent Killer Serials podcast, which you're gonna want to go back and listen to their past episodes. Um, and because binge, we don't have any
1: new ones. That podcast. Hard to listen to the current episode. I feel like I feel like you just have us on here because you're trying to kickstart us into getting into a new show. No, you know, you know what? You know
0: what? Four. I want to have you guys on because now I can call this our Popping Cereals episode, or even better, our Killer College. I like it.
1: That's really good. Which is <laughs> go. such
0: a great name. Uh, hard to say, but really good name for a podcast, Killer College. Those are
1: good crossovers. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Parker and Tony Jones. Gentlemen, where are you guys and what do you do when you're not doing this?
1: Hey, I'm Tony Jones.
3: I'm in Minneapolis. I'm in a suburb of Minneapolis called Edina. And uh, I'm a writer, editor, and, uh, you know, occasional seminary professor. So my day job is uh, working at Fortress Press. But uh, I've got some side hustles going, including uh, one with Ryan that holds a lot of promise.
0: What about you, Ryan?
1: Uh, I'm based in Los Angeles where I hustle with Tony Jones on an irregular basis. Marketing and public relations for film pays the bills and we're also moving into developing content so we have an option out on book to try to sell a script about that uh based on that book
0: so i feel lazy compared to you guys i'm i oh, do nothing Except to watch TV. Except the Lord's word. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, this is episode eighty-seven of Popping Collars, and our topic today is the hit documentary Won't You Be My Neighbor, a film that explores the life and work of the beloved children's television personality, Fred Rogers and his PBS series, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So I think all of us sitting around our virtual roundtable are of an age where we grew up with Mr. Rogers as a staple of public television. So I'll throw this out to the panel, and anybody can jump on it. Was there something in this documentary that stood out to you as information that you didn't previously know about either Mr. Rogers' The Show or The Man?
3: I can't say that I ever really reflected on Fred Rogers. I mean, I knew he was an ordained Presbyterian minister. I did not know that he was ordained to television evangelism by the Presbyterian church. I thought that was interesting. I had never really reflected on it, but I guess watching the documentary, it's no surprise that the guy was extraordinarily disciplined. Like in everything he did, he, you know, he exercised, he obviously did not, he was not a glutton. He You know, it's just like everything about him was done with great uh, rigor and discipline.
1: I didn't know that, or if I did, I'd forgotten that he was ordained minister. It made me think about, especially Tony bringing this up, it made me think about how that reveals like how much faith At one point in history, the church or certain denominations had in the power of film and TV that, you know, they would have they would have said these are our new missionaries. Right. And so it just kind of confirms that. I think the most surprising thing for me, though, was how progressive he his show was and the material that they addressed, like the war and divorce and all these things Mm -hmm. so early on in the show. I mean, I think just as a kid, what sticks to me are the puppets and the, the song and the day trips he would take. But I don't recall any of the heavier stuff that they really do feature in the show or in the film, in the, in the doc. I was um, what was interesting. and elicited uh,
2: gasps from the audience because I saw it in Berkeley was that he was a lifelong registered Republican. Yep. And uh, that was like, uh, I think people forget that there was a time you could be a moderate conservative. Um, because that used to exist. Um, but, you know, those kind of Jerry Ford Republicans, I understand that. Those are my people. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but uh, that was interesting. And and uh, at the same time, though, he was somebody who didn't seem to take a lot of political stances on things, uh, at least publicly. Um, he seemed to kind of keep that to himself.
0: So one of the conceits of the documentary was the use of the puppets, like what Ryan was saying about the, the puppets, this idea that they represent different parts of his personality. And that's, that's interesting that you make that political point. That's sort of like staying out of the fray. It makes me wonder, like, was there a way for him to voice some of that stuff? um, But not him giving voice to it. Some of the stuff with Fred Rogers and the puppets, like talking to kids felt a little odd. Like, is it him or is it a character? Sometimes I I I wonder like if it's something if if you're taking a subject like Fred Rogers that already has a lot of goodwill that people feel towards it, do you feel sometimes compelled like as an audience member to kind of gloss over some of the things that makes him maybe a more complex person? They they seem to say that his Achilles heel
2: was that he didn't have that he didn't believe in himself enough. Mm-hmm. So he taught. They talked about. They brought up that letter that said. You know, where he was saying, you know, I've re- i really, I, after all this, can I really still write a script? And, and they talked about, um, Daniel, Daniel Stripe and Tiger as being like his sort of childhood, <laughs> his sort of childhood view of himself and, and that he was very vulnerable. Um, like that's
1: the puppet that's ministering to him. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I didn't see like and then they occasionally came up with they, they also kind of compared him a little bit to the King Friday character and that he was a li- could be a little bit imperious, you know, or that he had a very specific way of doing things. And possibly I think some of the later footage was supposed to show that he felt angry or disappointed with the way that mass media had gone. There was some there was a little bit of that but I think you have to approach that really carefully because I think one of his one of his uh, sons called him the second Jesus yeah. <laughs> and so you have to be really careful about it's like sort of like Lincoln you know or some of these other characters you have to be really careful about what you say about them because they're holy figures in a way
3: I I think uh, I want to jump on something that Richard just said there because I thought that the stuff about like him transitioning to becoming more like King Friday the 13th as, as the show went on. And it was like, they kind of brushed that aside, but it's almost like, well, if we're going to do this documentary on this guy, we have to like, it can't be 100% cotton candy. You know, like we have to, but I watched. I looked at those two ki his two sons, and I'm yes. like, "Damn it, that's what I want to know about." This. <laughs> I was thinking those the two same thing. Are very freaking different. And <laughs> I want to know what kind of a dad was this guy, and that was never totally. mentioned. What yeah. kind of a dad was this guy?
1: Do you think these? Do you are you guys suggesting that these are a detriment to the film?
0: I think that the film is trying to do something. You know, it has a clear vision for what it wants to be, which is I think that the film is about and maybe we can talk about this. I think the film is about how you don't always choose your vocation in life. Sometimes your vocation kind of chooses you. Um, So this idea that Fred Rogers, you know, probably just wanted to be a nice Presbyterian minister, but he had this gift for talking and relating to children. And that's what he needed to do in life. And so the documentary was very much sort of geared towards that story. But it felt like, you know, you would see these these sort of angelic images of him walking down the beach. And you're thinking, well, I mean, that's nice, but I know people. And people are more complex than here's this great guy walking on the beach with his family. I think the, I
1: think you guys are hitting at undertones – of his character, of the, because it seemed like to me as the film went on, like you're talking about this kind of maniacal thing that, like, all he cared about was the success of the show, yeah. even though he didn't want to do that early in life. I mean, I think there was some complexity there with that. It's like that's what I'm trying to get at.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, they, they actually, the opening scene is really lovely when he's trying to describe teaching using music and movements on the piano. And it shows like there is a complexity there, you know, teaching is complex because it's about relationship. I have, I have kind of a
2: theory and like some of this fits into different parts of like what we discussed so far. So like, there's the question of the sons, how well did they get along with their dad? There's the question of the people who got along with him or whatever. And, and like what everybody kept saying the same over and over again was this is not a persona he puts on, on television that he's, this is something, this is the way he is in everyday life. And you would see him doing interviews with adults and he would talk to them like children.
3: Yeah.
2: He would talk to them with this extreme earnestness, kind of humorlessness. And uh, they made you uncomfortable really. Like you would thought he would have like just been able to sit back and just kind of laugh at himself, but he didn't seem to be capable of doing that. And um, one of the words that one of the people in the film used was eccentricity. And I wonder if he had a, a kind of a weird disorder but that that disorder was towards a kind of preternatural kindness towards children. Oh, Cause like, if you can have, you know, if you can have narcissistic personality disorder, like our president, you know, is it possible that you could have kind of a weird personality quirk that actually makes you extremely empathetic and somebody who sees the kind of, the kind of broken child in everybody and reaches out to that, may or may not be able to relate on other levels. We think of sort of within these boundaries of normal behavior, and we worry more about abnormal behavior that's going to hurt people. But what if you have abnormal behavior that helps people? Uh, We don't hear that much about that because, you know, it could be this is just the way this guy was.
3: Are we so accustomed to seeing a particular version of masculinity on television that when we see somebody like Fred Rogers or Rick Steves or, or you know, um, I mean they're, these are all like public television figures that I think about, or like Ken Burns or whatever. We're like, well, he's not very masculine. <sighs> I mean, you
2: know, Ira Glass. I was so shocked to find Ira Glass was straight. I was like, are you
3: kidding? Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that I think that's right. I think you're. I think you nailed it, Tony, because it's like what Richard was saying about the things that made fred rogers bristle in popular television right were sort of the gi joe images the thundercats images like all of these sort of uh, you know heightened masculinity rippling muscles sort of all that stuff it's the same thing that you know it's the same idea that you get from westerns where the the weakest person in the town is the town like parson you know who who's at the church and and doesn't have the guts that it takes to like you know, run the run the bandits out of town. Like he has yeah. to hide in his church the whole time. It's that mm-hmm. kind of feel to it. Or anybody who's educated, anybody
2: who's like been to you know has a university education or has read Shakespeare or whatever.
0: Yeah,
1: they're always yeah. the weak
0: link, right? And and especially with men working with children. As a man who works with children, I can tell you, I'm in the minority in the church world, and I think it's because of perceptions of the roles that men serve when it comes to children, youth ministry. Sure. Children's ministry. Well, wait a second. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, let's keep an eye on that one. Yeah. (laughs) So I
2: think the major message of the film was civility and incivility. That was the sense that I got watching it was that I felt that the film was, was indicting our current culture for being uncivil yeah, and uh, and then some of the reviews I've read, and also just I think in the reaction of the people who were watching the film, because like I don't know about where you guys saw it, but where I saw it, everybody was like in tears. They were like, just, you know, I've never heard so much sniffling, and I mean, you know, except that, like a, you know in a romantic film or something. And um, my sense was, I felt in I felt there was certain a certain indictment of the culture that, you know, what have we become, and we have not lived up to Mister Rogers' vision of of neighborliness and the idea that we should get along with each other
3: i think you're right i think we have a pollyanna view of what it was like i mean i think when they show clips of other shows that were running it you know he's everything on his show was so slow and they even showed like uh a, a, there was a, a clip from either sesame street or the electric company of like a guy with cakes falling downstairs. Which Remember is my that?
2: absolute favorite. I loved
3: that. <laughs> <laughs> but they used that as an example of how bad TV was for right. kids because it was fast and chaotic and klutzy and 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 like Keystone Cops slapstick humor. So did he think he was alone? Like he was unique in the television landscape for, for having this slow civil discourse? And is that really preparing Kids for the real world. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you, Richard. I, I think that's an indictment
1: that's that is historically naive. I don't think you have to go all the way to one side, though, with the indictment or the criticism. I mean, I still think there's a part of that that holds water. We're certainly not any better. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know that we're vastly better. It's not like we've evolved to be no to communicate or to be more civil. And I think at least that was his goal was to try to instill a sense of self-worth in young viewers and for them to see the value of the other. And I don't know that we've delivered on that vision any better than, and I I don't think we have to say that we have to think that the past was somehow better to make sense of where we are. I I still think you can look at this film as a call to be better. Mm -hmm. And, I don't. I don't know that the filmmaker would disagree with that.
3: Here's one thing that I don't think would happen today: is I do not think that a member of Congress at the end of the testimony of a public television figure would say, "You know what? You're right." I think you just got million dollars. <laughs> As we walked out of the theater, that was the character that my wife mentioned. <laughs> It was like that congressman he's he, he has some real damage <laughs> yeah.
0: that was like a real mr smith goes to washington moment though it like the amazing. thing that I, the thing that i always love about pop culture and politics is that you're one like stirring speech away from like changing policy in the country <laughs> and it never like and no like that's not like that's not how it works right that's like Aaron, that's the Aaron Sorkin fallacy <laughs> yeah it's the American president right like yeah. all of a sudden I'm going to convince everyone of my rightness but um, it worked in Independence Day <laughs> <laughs> well now that was a compelling speech yeah <laughs> I mean Mr. Rogers sure but come on Bill Pullman hmm.
2: <laughs> well so that was the thing I miss more than the civility or if I had a sense of what this was an indictment of in terms of our current society was that I feel like I grew up having grown up like having been a little kid in the in the mid to late 1970s in kind of a sweet spot for um public investment in things like mass media, public television, public education through television, and things like that. The fact that I sat there every day and watched Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, and uh, The Electric Company, which I think had a a great effect on me as a person, uh, and the fact that that's no longer available. You know, you have to have HBO to watch Sesame Street now. Yeah. Yeah. And so the fact that there was a time when people felt like that the public media and that the airwaves were actual, actually owned by the people and that they should be, they should be uh, a resource that should be shared uh, within the society in order to lift the whole society up. That is gone. It is absolutely gone. So, I mean, yeah, we, we talk about, you know, this is the golden age of television, but it's really not. It's the golden age of streaming service. You have to be able to pay for it in order to watch the good stuff. And when you talk about these days, like you know, um, the kind of hoarding of educational resources that's going on, where you know upper middle class families are making sure their their kids get to watch Sesame Street, they get to go to a great preschool, they get to go to a private school, they get to go to Yale and Harvard. There's a whole back back catalog of educational experiences that those kids get. That if you don't have those opportunities. You might be super smart and you might be able to get into a good college, but you're not going to get all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it just to, tends to perpetuate this generation to generation passing on a privilege. And I feel like that, to me, that was the most obvious thing that was missing.
0: I mean, you know, if you think about the space where these things live, right? So like Reading Rainbow was about literacy and Sesame Street was about sort of numbers and letters and stuff and mr rogers the space where it lived the niche that lived in public education and public television public education public television was uh morality and decency it was it was the manners uh Mm -hmm. show you know how to have good manners how to be a good neighbor and emotional intelligence yeah Empathy. empathy how to have empathy yeah and uh as these things start to get more and more privatized, you start to wonder like, what's the vacuum that gets created? Like is, is decency a public good that needs to be encouraged in some art form that's available to everyone?
2: I would say so. And I would, I would say, I think even for Mr. Rogers, I mean, I think, I don't know if he went far enough or if they needed to find some other people that had talents like his, because you generally stop watching that show about the time, at least for me, I stopped watching that show about the time I went to school and That's when you need it the most. (laughs) Like, grade grade school
1: school or grade school? Which grade school?
2: Uh, Grade school kids need this the most. I mean, it's like they're the most—they're the least empathetic human beings. (laughs) So, I mean, it's like they need like constant training in terms of that. And I think there was kind of, you know, it's sort of like you could
0: use that all throughout your life, basically at different stages of your life. It makes me wonder, like, you know, the way that documentaries are going is this the new kind of hagiography that we use to talk about the way that people affect culture?
3: I did walk away from it thinking he was an extraordinary human being. That's what I, I walked away. And I especially thought that honestly, because he went and he failed at the show for adults and he went back and succeeded again. And he, he didn't reinvent it, but he went to the theme week model and I thought, oh my gosh, this, this guy is truly an exceptional human being to be able to do that, and he'd be able, be able to fail and come back and, and still have the you know this impact, you no know, egg on his face. And it, it was like his. Then he started becoming this like this commencement speaker guy, you know, who would dole out wisdom to college kids. I I kind of think he deserves the hagiography, quite honestly.
0: One line. Uh, a segment that we do on the show called Staff Picks. So if you think about the old blockbusters, which I just found out, the last blockbuster in America is closing this week. No, it's uh, still open. It's still open? It's in Oregon. Oh, I thought they were closing. I thought that was the story. Was the, the last two in Alaska the last closed, one.
2: and that makes this one still yeah. be open. Bend, Oregon. And you can actually
3: follow the last Blockbuster on Twitter, and it's a freaking hilarious Twitter account.
0: (laughs) What I wonder is, do people go to the Blockbuster in Bend, Oregon, and just spend two hours staring at the wall trying to figure out what it is that they're going to take home? That's what I remember about Blockbuster. That's what I did um so anyway so this our staff pick segment is uh similar to similar to the blockbuster if you want to go to bend oregon and see what it's like um joe from who works at blockbuster will pick uh his favorite movies and put them on a shelf and so that's what we do here at uh popping colors we make staff picks and since uh since i'm the only staff here you guys have to listen to me talk about a movie that i saw last night that i'm still processing it's called sorry to bother you i've seen that one i saw it at south by i'm keen <sighs> to talk about it oh my gosh okay so uh just really quickly this movie sorry to bother you stars uh lakeith stanfield from uh, atlanta uh tessa thompson who's really getting into that phase of her career where if she's in something it's automatically better just because she's in it she's incredible. Um, so sorry to bother you it's, uh, it's a it's a satire by a filmmaker called Boots Riley it's his first film and he is um, it's set in kind of an alternate universe Oakland California and it involves a character named Cash Cassius Green who uh, takes a call who, who takes a job at a call center making sales calls and he realizes that he can actually sell if he uses a white voice then chaos just ensues from there. And it's uh, it's a satire. It's it's funny. It's mean. It's angry. It's uh, surreal. It's a bit of a fever dream at points. It's, it's this movie that goes in so many different places. It's about 1,500 movies in one movie. But it's definitely worth seeing. Uh, so Sorry to Bother You is my staff pick. What did you think about it, Ryan? I think it was making points that it just... Well, you could make a comment about
1: beating dead horse, but um, I know I thought for the first 45 minutes or so, it's it's incredible. I mean, and it's so good that I think even if you don't go where it goes, th- it doesn't r- just ruin the the experience for you. So, yeah, I mean, because I have you haven't really seen anything like it for those first that first kind of two thirds of the film, really, it's that final act that I'm like, oh, man. But I get it. I mean, I get it. And people, people loved it. The screening I was at was, was, uh, electric. I mean, it was, people were all in.
0: You can find popping collars on the web at popping dot You can find us on all the social media platforms. Just type in popping collars in the search bar. And of course you can get our podcast in all of the usual podcasting apps. Just don't forget if you'd like to support the show financially get some sweet sweet merchandise at the same time you can buy one of our t-shirts just go to popping college Podcast.com slash t-shirts and you will be the envy of your neighborhood when you show up with your popping college t-shirt and finally uh you can find our show and lots of wonderful episcopal podcasts on episcopalcafe.com we love episcopalcafe.com we know you as well check them out for all your episcopal news needs and beyond that has been popping college for this time Thank you, uh, Richard. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Tony, for coming on the show. We will see you next time. Great to be here. Keep those colors popped, guys. Thank you.